to the interview with the next platform. I'm Nicole Hemsoth, co-founder and co-editor and your host for today's episode. Today we'll be talking with Heather Ames. She's a co-founder at Neurala, a bio-inspired AI company that got its start with NASA and has since grown to include a much broader range of AI use cases. Ames has a PhD in Cognitive and Neural Systems from Boston University and a BS in Cognitive Neuroscience from UC Berkeley, where, as we know, a lot of interesting work has taken place over the years. Today we'll talk about trends in bio-inspired computing and the key evolutions that are making this once hot research area one that's actually being implemented in real-world settings. Hi, Heather. Thanks for joining. Hi. Thanks for having me. I think you picked a pretty good time to be in brain-inspired computing research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's let's talk a bit about where you started and what some of the key enabling innovations have been that you've seen over the years. Sure. So um, I actually began my interest in uh, bio-inspired computing um, when I was at Berkeley, um, and from there uh, I took some you know computer science classes mixed with neuroscience classes and, and just really my interest just took off in terms of how we could borrow from neuroscience to um, to help to create smarter smarter machines. Um, so from there I went to graduate school um, on the other coast actually at Boston University and at the time uh, Boston University was really leading the charge in bio-inspired computing. Um, there was a department there that I that I participated in called the Department of Cognitive and Neural Systems and the main focus there was sort of a, a strictly biological approach to AI and uh, deep learning, you know, the foundation of deep learning. Um, so shall I continue into the, the trends or you want me to keep going uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. so talk to us about sure. what, what you saw uh, once you dug into research and, and you mm -hmm. looked at both the hardware and software platforms that were being developed then. Yep. So I started my PhD in, in 2003. Um, and at that point in time, we even still did a significant amount of our work on desktop workstations. They were, um, at the point in time, every new graduate student was issued a desktop workstation. Uh, even with that that uh, machine power, we still had to run models for days or weeks at a time to get results uh, that we could use for our research. So one of the, the biggest innovations, at least during my career, was the advancement of GPU computing. Um, and this also really sort of um, let, put the fire under us in terms of starting our own company uh, back in 2006. But it was the GPU computing um, efforts that really made it possible to run some of these large scale biologically inspired or neurological systems um, in a time period that was actually useful for us. So that was probably one of the largest innovations during my, my graduate school lifetime that helped to sort of shift the way we thought about bio-inspired computing. Uh, the other innovation came after graduate school, which was um, a lot of the work that's been done in deep learning. Right, and GPUs obviously have a very big part to play in deep learning. Um, yeah. talk, talk to me about uh, how you think about using GPUs now. So is your company and, and all the current efforts that you have underway now, are those things focused on deep learning frameworks as we know them? So so say the big frameworks like TensorFlow and, Ca and CAFE, or is there another approach that, that works well on GPU that, that sort of gets to the heart of certain problems a little more efficiently or with higher performance? Sure. So uh, early on, I would say that uh, we saw a lot of value uh, in using uh, GPU architectures for, for building neural networks uh, to scale. Um, and, and that's still the case for sure. Um, 
but there's also been from time to time pushes to develop sort of more um, wild hardware, uh, NPUs or, you know, other types. Um, so when I was in graduate school, I also worked on the DARPA Synapse program with Hewlett Packard that was developing um, memristor-based hardware to, to perform uh, learning algorithms, which was fun, but perhaps a bit too early in the game. Um, but as of recently, there, there are several chip manufacturers that are working to design better what they call NPUs. So really getting at the heart of um, the computations that need to be performed on the computers to become even more efficient. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what are some of those architectures you find most interesting and, and why? So we, we have from time to time experimented with a few of them. Some are really challenging just in terms of documentation and tools um, associated with them that allow us to actually build something useful rather than just troubleshoot on a on an unknown hardware. Um, other things have done some pretty innovative um, things w in terms of memory and computation and sort of bundling them closer together so we don't have loss. Um, so it, it it really has been um, a lot of different experiences, and it's. I think it's just sort of the beginning of seeing some interesting hardware configurations. Mm -hmm. We've seen that too. This idea that memory is kind of the next platform for these new mm -hmm. emerging AI workloads. So yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, talk to me about Neurala. So tell us tell us what it is. It's it's obviously a software driven platform that you and your team have developed. But let's let's talk about who it's for and how it works. Sure. So um, Nerala was founded actually about 10 years ago by myself um, and uh, two other men that I went to graduate school with. Uh, our initial idea was that we were sick of running our networks on our workstations uh, for days and weeks and that we should move to GPU computing. Um, in addition to that, uh, our CEO, Max, said, hey, uh, I bet we're going to have GPUs and cell phones, you know, within our lifetime, and that's going to be really cool because we can run these things on cell phones. And so the story goes that our CTO, Anatoly, spit his coffee across the table and laughed about it. Um, but it was at that point in time that the three of us sat down and we wrote our first patent, which was about neural networks and GPU computing. Um, so we're pretty proud of that. That's when we founded the company. So at that point in time, we had really no idea um, what we were doing necessarily or what this would become, but we knew that we wanted to build neural net networks that would be useful, um, that people could use and apply um, in, and solve real world, world problems. And also that we knew that people didn't want to do computing at giant workstations. They wanted to do computing on their phones. So in the beginning of this, we were all still in graduate school and we just, you know, we wrote a patent and founded a company to hold the patent and did some consulting work. But um, I would say around 2013, we were invited to participate in the Techstars Accelerator Program. Uh, and that's when we really shifted to, all right, um, we've been building this technology, technology slowly over the years. Um, now we need to sort of figure out how we can productize it and commercialize what we've been building. And okay. So so today, and, sorry, sorry, sorry. Just, just to be clear too, the, yeah. so, so what you're focused on and what your patent is focused on is, is running uh, GPU computing on mobile devices versus workstations, right? It, it's on GPUs essentially, and those can also be within the mobile devices. And we have since written several, uh, apparently we like to write patents, but we have several patents that we have um, out there. We try to write things when we innovate. Um, but um, that, that was essentially the foundation, is we wanted to be able to build neural networks that could, mo that could operate on a mobile device. 
And so that's that's sort of been our inspiration for 10 years. And it, it took some time for both the hardware um, and the theory to catch up to where we saw things. Um, and it's been within the last several years that that has really um, been possible. And so it's a really exciting time for us uh, to be doing this kind of work. Um, we, we've been innovating mostly in a platform space, but we've also been um, targeting some vertical markets as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so any more though, uh, to train even a neural network, even a modest sized neural network, you need a pretty beefy GPU running on, on pretty big servers <laughs> with a lot of memory and, and all of that. So, um, so do you see these things kind of shrinking down? I know there's been a lot of work done to scale model sizes down and trim them in all sorts of interesting ways so that they, they're easier to train and more importantly, inference is not so bulky and, and heavy duty, right? Mm-hmm. So, so how does your work fit into that? So one of the ways we've been trying to answer the question of training on bulky servers is through um, some of our algorithm advances, actually. So we've developed something we call lifelong DNN, which allows for training to happen um, on device uh, and with single or very few image presentations. Uh, And this sort of really cuts down the need for that heavy bulky server. We can build LDNN-based networks off of some pretty standard uh, DNN um, architectures, and we just build upon that to create this algorithmic advancement. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime you trim down the complexity of a network, it means your accuracy goes down and the capabilities go down. So what's the what's the balance there? And, and what sort of networks that, that you're working on training yep. respond well to this sort of very pared down approach. So we actually don't trim down the complexity of the network. Um, what we do is we've we've modified a bit of the architecture of the network to allow for us to be able to learn in real time. Um, so we um, were able to do this um, today um, in a, an object recognition scenario. So with a cell phone, you can just learn single instances um, on the cell phone itself without losing that complexity. Sure. Uh, give me a couple examples of this. And, and if you have some real world user examples, that would be great. Um, so one uh, one use case that we're working on with uh, one of our partners is Motorola. And in this case, uh, the use case there is that they have these body worn cameras where they're on, on uh, first responders and police officers. And so the idea there is that um, an officer in the field may be alerted um, that there's a missing child. And through the video feed, they can learn uh, what that child looks like um, on that video feed, just on the body cam. Then they take that knowledge and they send it off through the network to all the other responders in the in the same area so that all the body cams are essentially scanning the crowd looking for that person. So it essentially allows you to learn that single instance on the edge without going back to a server. That's fascinating. Is that How does it affect battery life and how does that affect the performance of the the sensor or device or camera whatever you're using sure so battery life is definitely um, something that's still being explored in that use case Um, you know there's various things that we can do in terms of conservation of the power and so forth of you know not running the network constantly for example only when it's necessary Um, but in general when you're just learning our learning methodologies are really fast, you know, within the millisecond time frame. So um, it's a quick learning um, paradigm, and then and then we move into inference. 
Mm -hmm. And those things are both done on the fly on the same device uh, mm -hmm. using the same software workflow as, a, as it were. Okay, That's correct. All right. Well, that, that's pretty complicated. And that's obviously a, an emerging use case. And, and we've, yes. we've talked a lot in the past. And, and what we tend to cover is more of those bulky servers that you're trying to get away from yes. with the big, heavy, high-powered GPUs like the Pascal and the Volta. Um, and, and we're seeing such a trend toward toward the edge now that the data center and its position is sort of being called into question, right? So as you see it, what are some of the big challenges first from a software uh, framework point of view? And then secondly, from a hardware device point of view when it comes to enabling the next generation of these, these sorts of use cases and devices? So um, as much as we advocate for learning on the edge, we, there's also still a lot of value in terms of batch training on, on servers and um, the value of the cloud um, platform. Um, in terms of software, I would say some, some of the biggest challenges we have today is understanding um, what kinds of computations are useful on the edge versus, versus on a server and how to uh, have those devices uh, communicate together effectively um, and send appropriate knowledge. So I think it's really about like um, now it's about infrastructure and communication and also I'd say job allocation. So when do you want to learn on the edge? When does that make sense? When do you want to learn on a server? Right, right. Uh, and those things are probably very tailored to whatever the use case is and, and whatever the user wants. Exactly, <laughs> so. exactly. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about this market in general. So clearly you and your team saw a, a need for this in the marketplace. Where do you see the most growth happening at the edge where it's going to need this sort of complex deep neural network approach versus just kind of a, a more machine learning or a pared down approach. Uh, wh wh where's your market? Yeah, so um, right now we have a lot of focus in terms of um, drone-based inspections um, as well as smart devices in general. So drone-based inspections is a, is a pretty good use case for us to be able to run a network um, on the drone itself. And the reason why the learning on the edge is important there is it allows the operator to um, create a more efficient workflow when they're flying drones to inspect, say, you know, pipelines, towers, um, a whole bunch of different infrastructure types. So rather than coming back, you know, to the base, loading the data on the server and doing an analysis and then saying, oh, wait a minute, we saw an interesting piece of damage on this side of the tower. We should have zoomed in. Uh, we're able to make those modifications in the field. So it's a huge cost savings um, there. So that's one market that's been um, that's been really key for us right now. Um, the other thing is smart devices. So we're only beginning to sort of look at how um, AI or other bio-inspired computing can help with um, smart devices in general and you know even something as simple as just the basic cell phone so how can learning on the edge help to customize and improve user experience mm -hmm. a, a lot of smart devices when i think of just just things for the home uh, outside of cell phones yep it seems to me like the like the use case is pretty simple it's generally taking a small amount of data from a sensor or whatever it is and sending it over to the cloud to do all the smart stuff right so yeah. what's going to be possible that maybe wasn't before in terms of new use cases if more can be done on the actual device so think about it in terms of data privacy um, i think one of the biggest you know hurdles right now in terms of um, even in toys, for example, is privacy. So nobody wants to have the Barbie that's pinging the cloud to learn. Um, but they all, you know, but there's a lot of interest in developing smart toys. So if you were able to do all of the computation on the device, there's not an issue of privacy there. 
Mm-hmm. Does anybody actually want that Barbie? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so. Very good. Uh, just to make a, a quick uh, clarification here, when you talk about bio-inspired computing, um, you talk about it sometimes uh, in the same camp as AI and sometimes separately. Yeah. So just generally speaking here, you know, how should how should people that maybe aren't familiar with this uh, from a more device or consumer device standpoint think about bio-inspired computing, AI, and then sort of the gray area of machine learning that's that's kind of the umbrella, right? Yeah, so yeah, I do have a tendency to use them interchangeably, uh, probably just due to my training. Um, but they are there are quite different approaches um, in the underlying motivation and the underlying architectures. Um, for myself and also my other co-founders, because we were schooled in bio-inspired computing, uh, we find it just to be a, a really motivating factor to help us solve hard problems. So instead of uh, you know trying to think abstractly about how to solve a problem, we sort of go back to ourselves or we look at our children and, and think about you know how would they learn to do X, Y, and Z? You know what's happening in the brain, and then can we use that uh, to help us to to solve this problem that we're having in one of our networks? Mm-hmm. I, I know that's a natural response for you too. We were talking before the show started about your work with speech, and I think that's a great use case to kind of track the evolution of all of this. How how do some of the lessons you learned and looking at AI from a speech analysis and recognition and um, AI driven perspective feed what you're doing now? Yeah. So it it was a in graduate school people either they picked a sense and stuck with it. Uh, so I, I focused on speech <laughs> and now I'm doing uh, vision, um, you know, but um, I would say that there, there's actually a lot of value in it. Um, the biggest thing to learn from the speech paradigm, um, luckily that's where I was, was that the world is dynamic. Um, it's so easy when you're in the vision space to sort of box yourself into just single static images. But in reality, the world is constantly changing around you. And you would expect your systems to do the same. That's right. That's a great point. Well, Heather Ames from Neurala, thank you so much for all of your insight about the edge and deep learning and AI and now speech. <laughs> kind of all <laughs> over the place, but very fascinating. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Take care. Thank you.